If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. suggests, in fact it says very explicitly, that when the king and queen lie together, when they have their marital relations, there shouldn't be anyone else in the room. And then the author goes on to say, this is what happened all the time, except in King Henry's day, when Lord Say and the Chamberlain would be there. That was Lauren Johnson on the sex life of Henry VI. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Earlier this month, a major new biography was published on one of England's most disastrous medieval kings, Henry VI, the man who famously presided over defeat in the Hundred Years' War, and then saw the country riven apart in the Wars of the Roses. The biography is written by the historian and author Lauren Johnson, and she paid a visit to our Bristol studio last week to discuss her new take on the troubled monarch. To begin at the beginning, Henry becomes king at an extremely young age. He's, he's still a baby, fundamentally. And how much of a factor is this going to be in his failure to become a successful monarch, do you think? I think a huge factor. The big moral of Henry's story is don't make a baby a king. Uh, particularly 
of course, in the medieval era, to become a king, you were inheriting the throne from your father, usually. Um, and so the fact that Henry is nine months old when he becomes king of England, slightly older, he's about 10 or 11 months when he becomes king of France, uh, therefore means his father is already dead. He never even met his father, King Henry V, the victor of the Battle of Agincourt. So he never sees a king when he's growing up. And I think that's very important. He has no concept of what uh, real kingship is. He's very well educated in it. He has lots of books about it. He has lots of uncles from the Lancastrian dynasty to tell him what to do and how to behave. Um, but he doesn't realise what the, the true nature of kingship is, which is basically in the Middle Ages, you have to be quite ruthless and unpleasant, ultimately. And was this all made worse by the fact that his father was such a powerful, successful warrior king that there was so much to live up to in that case? Yes, I think so. And Henry VI is onto a loser with that right from the beginning because he has no siblings. His heirs for most of his childhood, right into his teens, are men who are a generation older than him, who just by peculiar happenstance don't have any legitimate children of their own. So the Lancastrian dynasty is entirely resting on Henry's shoulders, which means that he can't go to war, really. It's just too dangerous to risk his life on a battlefield. Whereas his father had been one of four brothers. I mean, really, he was expendable. So he could go off to war when he was 11. He could fight in a battle when he was 16. Um, so I think that is a really big challenge for Henry as he's growing up. So obviously, he comes to the throne as a baby. He's not immediately running the country. But what is he actually kind of expected to do when he's a child? How much kingship or... Um, official activities are expected of him while he's still a young a young boy. Absolutely. Henry's not ruling exactly until he's in his mid to late teens. He has a council and a protector, his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester in England, and a regent in France, his other uncle, John, Duke of Bedford. But he is very visibly reigning. What's strange about Henry's story is that he is wheeled out almost from the moment he is king, literally uh, in, I think, the November following his father's death. So he's still not even a year old. He's taking part in appointing the Chancellor of England. This little baby has to pass the great seal of office from one Chancellor to another Chancellor. And time and again, he appears before Parliament and before councils. So some of his earliest memories probably were of basically being paraded around, sometimes literally on his mother's lap because he is so small. Um, to attend these great occasions. So I think he has a bit of a, maybe almost a puppet idea of kingship. He knows how to look good. He knows how to wander the streets in great big robes and sit for very long periods of time uh, looking sombre. But he doesn't really understand all of the other bits of kingship. Now, Henry's not the first child king in, in English history. There had been a, a few previous examples. What Did any of the others go more successfully? Was there any example that they could have learned from? Uh, well, I suppose they were successful in that they didn't necessarily lose all their kingdoms, as Henry did, um, but they weren't much better. So Henry III, for instance, who was king after bad King John in the early 13th century, his reign is blighted by civil war. Uh, Edward III, who I think is 14 when he comes to the throne a century later, Again, not. Uh, it's better. It's better. That's when the Hundred Years' War starts and really is much more successful. But it still ends with sort of a, not a great form of kingship towards the end. And then the most recent child king in the memory of the people who were bringing Henry up would have been Richard II, right 
on the cusp of the dawn of the um, 15th century. And he ends by being deposed by the Lancastrian dynasty and probably starved to death. So again, not a great example, unfortunately. And I think uh, maybe that part of the concern of Henry's advisers when they were bringing him up was to not let him turn into Richard II, to not let him become that very authoritarian, almost tyrannical ruler that Richard had become, which Henry was, to be honest, never going to be because that just wasn't his nature. But they couldn't see that for some time because it takes a while for your personality to um, reveal itself. Um, And I think that that was probably a problem because Henry spent his entire childhood being simultaneously told, right, settle these disputes between uh, very powerful princes. One day you will be leading the armies in France. One day you'll be ruling two countries. And at the same time being told, but not yet. (laughs) You don't know how to do it yet. You're too young. Uh, Trust your counsellors. Make sure you're always listening to the people around you. So I think that's quite confusing. And when Henry first tries to take power for himself, probably being pushed a bit by his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, when he's between 12 and 14, so on the cusp of adolescence, again, his counsellors squish him, basically. They say, no, you can't do it until you're older because you're just not good enough, essentially, is the message to him. And because he's a sensitive person, I think that really affects him and his his trust in his own judgment. How responsible would you say his counsellors are for the failure of him to develop into a good king? Did they not really do their job properly? That's a really tricky question because I think one of the incredible things about Henry VI's early reign is how hard the people around him try Um, to hold things together. And in fact, right through Henry's reign, that's really the lesson of it. The fact that Henry isn't deposed until almost 10 years after there's been massive rebellions and the loss of France and so on, um, suggests that people are really invested in Henry's leadership and in trying to keep him on a steady course. But there's no denying that Henry's um, childhood causes problems because the uncles in particular who are advising him and who are trying to rule on his behalf have very different ideas of what should be happening. So his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, essentially thinks that he should be regent and running the country until Henry's old enough to do it himself. Whereas other uncles are saying, no, it should definitely be a conciliar form of government and they're trying to block Gloucester's bids for power. And because this is an age of personal monarchy, whoever controls the king has the greatest access to power. So all of that... Uh, conflict and animosity focuses on Henry himself. He is the only one who could resolve that conflict, but he's just too young to do it. So I think that sets up in him because of all that turbulence and, I mean, sort of unhappiness, really, in his family background. I think that sets up in him a real concern not to allow conflict to continue, not to allow arguments. And that means he essentially just becomes a yes man. He says yes to people because that's easier than them having a conflict with him by him saying no, which is, again, a really bad thing for a medieval king to have as a habit. Things go very wrong for Henry in in the 1450s, but prior to that, how was he faring as a king before everything goes wrong in France and everything? He was actually an adult king for quite a few years before the Wars of the Roses period. Was that also a disaster, that period? (laughs) Uh, I don't think it's a disaster. I think there is a genuine prospect that the Hundred Years' War could have ended peacefully, which is a strange thing to say, but that is ultimately Henry's aim. His one very clear policy as an adult ruler is peace. And he's definitely ruling by about 1440 at the absolute latest. And at that point, he is founding educational establishments, Eton and King's College, Cambridge, which he says he explicitly doing because he wants to commemorate the fact he is now ruling as a king in genuine sense. And he is also very fervently pushing the peace policy. He does things that his father, Henry V, had expressly said not to do 
in his will. Of course, Henry V might have changed his mind if he'd lived and seen how much the war continued to cost and how uh, strong the French pushback became as the 1430s went on. I mean, when you're fighting someone like Joan of Arc, you kind of have to change your tactics. That's the trouble. So I think Henry has extremely good intentions and his one mistake is that he is so devoted to peace that he is willing to give up more than is wise. So he can release Charles, Duke of Orléans, for instance, who's been prisoner of war since the Battle of Agincourt 25 years earlier, which is a very unpopular move. He can give up the territory of Maine in France to back to the French. Again, a very unpopular move. And I think there is an increasing sense throughout the 1440s that he is making decisions that are not politically sensible, really, that they're not the best things for the country. But in Henry's mind, they are very clearly to make peace. It's just that maybe it's not the best way to do it. It might, ironically, have been better if he had gone and led an army in France. Part of the reason he can't is because he still doesn't have an heir. So that is a really big factor in in what starts to go wrong, is that he, he just can't lead an army because he doesn't have a child, even when he's been married for years and years. So that's interesting, because that's something that's come out of your book, is he married Margaret of Anjou in, in the 1440s and then didn't produce an heir for quite a long time. And something that you've researched, which actually had quite a bit of press coverage, is the idea that he had this this sex coach. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's my favourite thing that's come out of this, is the idea that there's a sex scandal involving Henry VI, the most famously virginal <laughs> of any king. So during my research, uh, I was looking into Henry and Margaret's marriage because I think they are such a fascinating couple. You You can't look at Henry after his marriage, really, without also looking at Margaret. They're the yin and yang to one another. And as time goes on, she becomes more and more the traditional king role. She is more and more sort of influential, powerful, while Henry becomes more and more of that queenly uh, medieval notion of a passive ruler, a peacemaker. And that in itself sort of undermines Henry's masculinity. But from uh, quite early on, they're married in 1445. And within a couple of years, there are rumblings which find their way into in legal indictments, basically, accusations of treason against some of Henry's subjects to do with uh, people saying something weird's going on in the king's bedchamber. The Duke of Suffolk, who's Henry's chief advisor, he's interfering in it in some way. A couple of other names are bandied around. Then by 1448, so only three years into the marriage, and I should point out at this point that uh, Margaret is 15 when she marries Henry, so she's still only 18 when these rumblings are starting. Um, then people are starting to say, oh, well, she shouldn't have married Henry in the first place because she obviously can't produce a prince. Something's wrong with her. Let's get rid of her. That will solve the problem. And there is a document about royal protocol called the Royal Book, which has been looked at before, I should say that. But combining what it says in the Royal Book with those in indictments does seem to suggest that there is something going on in Henry's bedchamber because the Royal Book suggests, uh, in fact, it says very explicitly, that um, when the king and queen lie together, when they have their marital relations, there shouldn't be anyone else in the room. And then the author goes on to say, this is what happened all the time, except in King Henry's day, when Lord Say and the Chamberlain would be there. So very clearly, because of the dating of this, it's a few years into the marriage. It's around the time that those indictments are coming out, based on who is named. Uh, So that suggests to me that it had begun to be realised beyond the palace walls, that there was something not right, that maybe Henry needed help. At the time, it's framed as being Margaret's problem. But let's be honest, it's probably Henry (laughs) who didn't know what he was doing. And I I think there was probably some involvement of the Duke of Suffolk and Lord Say, uh, one of Suffolk's 
allies in government and that they probably were telling Henry what to do at that point. I just think Henry so fervently like held up his chastity before he was married that I suspect he probably didn't really know what he was doing. And there are rumours, and I don't know how much credence you give them, that actually when Henry did have a son, it wasn't actually his son that Margaret had taken other measures. I mean, is there any truth behind that at all? Simply, there isn't any evidence that it was anyone else's child. There is, however, a lot of slander and a smear campaign, I would call it, about that. Uh, So the tricky situation is that Henry and Margaret's only child is born eight years into their marriage in 1453. And he is born three months after Henry VI has suffered a catastrophic mental breakdown in which he can't respond to anyone, he can't walk, apparently he can't talk or really feed himself, he doesn't even raise his head. So there's no way he can recognise the child that's been born to him. And in fact, on one occasion, we know that Margaret went to him with the child and said, you know, give this child your blessing. And Henry didn't respond at all. He looked at it and then looked down. So that causes a real problem because if the child has not been recognised by the king, and in in the end it takes 16 months before Henry recovers, so that's the earliest he can be recognised officially, then there is always going to be the possibility of uncertainty. But there is no certainty at all that Margaret was involved with anyone else before that. And the earliest rumours that Edward is not Margaret's child really come with the rise of the Yorkist resistance to Henry's regime in the late 1450s. Um, And I would suspect are probably the brainchild of the Earl of Warwick, famously remembered as Warwick the Kingmaker, who is essentially the spin doctor of the Yorkist regime and is incredibly good at spreading all sorts of uh, anti-Lancastrian propaganda. So I, I think that of all the things Margaret of Anjou is accused of being, she is not accused of being a fool and it would have been foolish to have had an affair in order to produce a child. So I I think that that child is Henry's. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
of a detour. Now, you just referred to what happened to Henry, I think was brought on by the, the disaster in France where England lost a lot of its territory. But there's been a lot of discussion about what kind of mental breakdown Henry had. So I wonder, first, do you think it's possible to diagnose at this kind of distance a mental condition somebody had 500 years ago? And if so, what, what's your thoughts about what, what may have happened to him? Firstly, it isn't possible <laughs> to diagnose him 550 years later, simply because of the sources that are available to us. But it is interesting to speculate. So I'm very happy to speculate. Uh, and there has been a lot of chatter in the last 40 years about trying to diagnose Henry and particularly focusing on the possibility he had schizophrenia inherited through his mother's side of the family because his maternal grandfather, King Charles VI of France, also suffers mental ill health. But Charles VI has a completely different range of um, presentations, if you like, or symptoms of, of his illness. He's, he's sort of frenzied. He attacks people. He believes assassins are after him. He refuses to change his clothes. He tears down his wife's wall hangings. He refuses to recognise people. He insists his name is George. It's a very active form of, of mental ill health. And what's striking about it is it, it starts with Charles VI in his 20s and never goes away. There are periods of lucidity, in which are, I mean, tragic, really, because he realises he will fall ill again. But there is, there, it's not the same as Henry VI. What happens with Henry VI is he appears to have been completely healthy until he's 31 years old, at which point, as you've said, he receives news of basically he's lost France. He's lost the last of it apart from a tiny bit of Calais. And at that point, he goes into this state of, of stupor, really. He doesn't respond to anything. And that is so completely the opposite of Charles VI that it could be down to different personalities, but I don't think it is. I think it's down to a completely different illness. I think maybe we would say today it's a, a profound depression. And I spent a lot of time, I looked at every single source there is available about Henry VI's illness from the 15th century. I spoke to psychologists in the modern day. I spoke to historians of medicine. Um, and I looked at the diagnostic journal of, of medical symptoms to see what the, those for schizophrenia were compared with other things. And I very firmly decided that I didn't think Henry had schizophrenia, but exactly what he did have is, is very difficult. According to 15th century history, though, what I do like to say is uh, he had a lot of phlegm. He had, he had an imbalance of humours that meant he had too much phlegm. That's quite clear. And <laughs> so the Wars of Roses follow quite shortly on from, from this breakdown. How far do you think that conflict comes about because of the weakness of Henry as a king? Oh, very much from Henry's weakness. I think it predates Henry's uh, mental ill health, though. And I think that the big factor in the Wars of the Roses that I feel has been slightly overlooked is the Duke of York himself and his ambition and his concern to control Henry which begins in 1450, so three years before Henry has any sort of onset of his illness. Uh, and it begins with York coming back to the country in the midst of a great big rebellion that's taking place and a number of Henry's chief advisors being killed. Essentially, I think York goes, oh, this is an opportunity. Hello, I can step back in and take the place of some of these murdered uh, advisors of the king. Maybe I can rule through him because by then it's becoming clear Henry is quite a passive king. 
And time and again, for the next 10 years, you have this pattern in which York tries to assert his own right to government, which he undoubtedly has. He's the closest Duke of the Royal Blood. He has a right to a role in government. But he wants a chief role in government. He keeps asserting that. And Henry, and then later on, increasingly, his wife Margaret, say, no, no, thank you. We, we don't want you. And then York goes, ah, but you do want me, don't you? Here, I've got this army. Now you want me. And they go, no, no, we really don't. Ah, well, I've got this army and I've murdered some more of your chief advisors. No, we still don't. And for 10 years, that's what happens. Uh, And so Henry's weakness is as king, his political simplicity, I suppose, is a good way to put it. And then after his mental breakdown, for want of a better term, his uh, passivity are big factors. But I think the really, really important moment in the dynamic, the beginnings of the Wars of the Roses that cannot sort of be turned back is 1455 when the Battle of St Albans happens. It's not the first time York's raised an army, incidentally, against Henry's regime, but it is the first time that uh, actual blood is shed as a result of that. It happens in the streets of St Albans with Henry in the marketplace, attended by various members of his household, so his servants effectively, who are probably not fully armoured and armed. And Henry watches these men be killed around him. He he probably doesn't see his chief advisers being killed, but that also happens on that same day. And Henry himself is wounded. And all of that happens within months of his recovery from this episode of mental ill health. So I think that was catastrophic for him psychologically. I think that really ruins any chance that he will ever become an active king again. For York, it's great because uh, he manages to get rid of a load of rivals and win a second protectorate out of it. From that point on, it's always going to be York versus Lancaster because the uh, followers of Henry VI, particularly the ones whose dads have been murdered, are are always going to be angry at York. So the the situation escalates. So Henry clearly was not set up to be the head of one side of a civil war. He clearly really wasn't up to that. So who stepped into his place to take the lead on the Lancastrian side? Margaret is the simple answer. Uh, it's Margaret's remembered, I think, very much through the prism of Shakespeare. This accusation is always held up about uh, Richard III that Shakespeare affected his memory. I think it's even more the case for Margaret of Anjou because we remember her as being this bitter, slightly twisted, extremely angry, masculine form of queen. And she isn't that at all. For the first eight years of her rule, really, alongside Henry, she is very similar to him. She tries to make peace, she tries to conciliate. And then at the point that Henry has this mental breakdown, she has to step up to represent him and their son. Uh, And because Henry increasingly especially, like I say, after the Battle of St Albans. He just doesn't want to be involved in any more bloodshed. He doesn't want to cause any more trouble. He wants everyone just to forgive each other and get along and hold hands and love one another. Then clearly he's not going to be able to lead that faction, so Margaret has to do it herself. But she isn't, I should emphasise, she isn't leading the armies. She is a, a figurehead and she is always extremely careful to say that she is acting on behalf of Henry or on behalf of her son. The, the real sort of military leaders are still men in the Lancastrian regime. And now there's there's about a decade where Edward IV is on the throne, but Henry is still alive. What happens to him in that time? And why was it that the Yorkists didn't just kill him then? Because they couldn't get hold of him <laughs> at first. Uh, there's a, quite a protracted period in which Henry VI is up in either the north of England or Scotland from 1461 when they first flee 
after being very firmly defeated by King Edward IV in battle at Towton until around 1465. When Henry's in the north, he's trying, or the people around him, (laughs) to be more accurate, are trying to ferment rebellion within England. And at the same time, Margaret and some other Lancastrians are on the continent. And she is extraordinary in this period because she is endlessly moving between different courts within Europe or making contact with different courts, trying to essentially unite as much of Europe as she possibly can to invade England and reassert Henry's right to the throne. That plan slightly backfires when in 1465 Henry is captured by the Yorkists, although he manages a year on the run, sort of somewhere in the wilderness. We don't even know where he is exactly. Lots of myths arise. And at that point, Henry is in the control of the Yorkists, but his son is not. His son is with Margaret on the continent. And so actually there's no point killing Henry because if they kill Henry, they've got this adolescent child who appears to be very military-minded who's growing up um, to essentially to destroy the Yorkist regime. It's his probable uh, endgame. And if they get rid of Henry, they essentially lose the Lancastrian dynasty, a really rubbish leader, and replace it with a very motivated young one um, and give the Lancastrian dynasty even more um, sort of legitimacy on an international level. Henry VI had been crowned king. He was still alive. Did people recognise Edward as king when when Henry was still alive and, and hadn't seemed to have done anything particularly horrible himself? Yeah, it's a very confusing time because as far as we can tell, people... So they first like Edward IV. There's lots of reports in 1461 that he's very popular. He's treated like a god, it's said. Uh, But at the same time, there is a lot of Lancastrian activity in the kingdom. There's uh, Harlot Castle doesn't fall until 1468, for instance. It's held by the Lancastrians for that long. Uh, And other parts of the kingdom, particularly Northumberland, is very actively continuing the fight for Henry. And what's interesting is that as soon as Edward sort of starts falling from favour a bit with the people, then immediately everyone goes, oh, but what about Henry? Weren't it? Wasn't everything better when Henry was here? Wasn't we had less taxation? Uh, all the wars went really well. I mean, they immediately forget the reality of the situation. Uh, and I think that's the English in a nutshell, probably, I mean, to this day, but certainly in the 15th century that you you sort of... Um, imagine a much more golden age that had gone before. So I think Henry is able to use that uh, mis-memory of him to his advantage. And then right at the end of his life, he does actually come back to the throne for for a year. Do we know much about what he did on that year and whether he was in any sense reigning by this point? He, he was reigning. He wasn't remotely ruling, I think it's fair to say. He comes back to the throne essentially because Edward IV's chief ally, Warwick the Kingmaker, turns against Edward IV, and decides, this Edward, he's a bit opinionated. Wouldn't it be nicer if I had some sort of puppet figure that I could easily wheel out and legitimise all my own decisions? Oh, Henry VI is just there in the Tower of London. Maybe I'll get him out. And effectively, what would have happened if if essentially Edward IV hadn't successfully um, come back and won a range of battles is that Henry would never have been ruling again, in all honesty. It would have been Warwick at first who was ruling for him. And then I think probably even the Lancastrians by this point were thinking, oh, thank God we've got this young prince to take over at some point from rubbish old Henry. Essentially, Henry is brought out of imprisonment and I would say, again, everything about his behaviour suggests he's in profound depression. He hasn't uh, been looking after himself. He's described as looking very sort of 
shambling. He's probably bearded at this point, which, as we as we all know, Rob is a sign of moral degeneration. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> he's sleeping a great deal, and he processes around London, not wearing the robes of kingship, but apparently a, a blue velvet gown. And blue is the royal colour of mourning. So it's a very strange thing for him to be doing. Uh, and I just think he can't stand up to Edward IV because Edward IV is so inspiring. He's so charismatic. He's such a, a force in politics. Henry never was. So I, I think it was always going to end as it did, which is that Edward IV wins and Henry ends up back in the tower. And Henry's son is, is killed in battle, so he has no heirs. And then Henry himself dies. Um, and I think the official stories, he died of melancholy or something That's like that. Certainly the official but... Yorkist story. Yeah. Uh, he it seems died unlikely. Of... Yeah, it <laughs> seems fairly unlikely, given it happens the day that Edward IV comes back to London. I think at that point, because his his son has died, there's no longer any purpose keeping Henry VI around. He's only going to now continue to represent a threat to the Yorkist regime. So there's no doubt in my mind that he was killed. And very soon after his death, death, there begin to be rumours that he was murdered, possibly with a dagger, possibly on the orders of Edward's or on the action of Edward's brother, the Duke of Gloucester, who later becomes Richard III. Rumours begin swirling around very swiftly. And the strangest thing is that people, again, using that slightly weird gold-tinged memory that they're capable of, start to remember Henry not as a rubbish king, but as a saint. And Henry suddenly becomes this miracle worker after he is dead. And that is strange because, like you said, he'd been a very unsuccessful king who'd presided over defeat in France and then civil war. In very recent memory, why did people then decide to revere him? I think because of the elements of his personality that had always been there. He'd always been kind. He'd always been generous. He'd always been loyal. And he was those things, unfortunately, to a fault. So he put his loyalty and his generosity towards the wrong people. Um, But he had founded educational establishments. Eton and King's College still exist today, which is quite extraordinary. And he had been concerned for his subjects, particularly for children, I think, because he'd had such a traumatic childhood himself. Uh, So I think it does make sense that he is held up as a saintly figure. And also, of course, the fact that he is believed to have been killed helps a great deal. So he's seen as having suffered and therefore probably being really a more sympathetic ear to people. And that uh, there is a real drive to get Henry made a saint, in fact, by the the later Lancastrian dynasty, the Tudors, uh, when they take the throne. But it, it never happens, in part because of the papacy not being interested and in part because Henry VIII comes along and dissolves the monasteries and gets rid of all the, the pilgrimage sites. So that's the end of the cult of Henry VI. Did subsequent... English kings and and queens too, did they learn any lessons from the reign of Henry VI of what not to do? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, it's very difficult because Henry VI is unusual in being an only child. I'm trying to think of other only children who follow on in history who are the heir to the throne. And I think that's, like I said, I think that is part of Henry's big problem is he is living in an age of warfare when he really needed to fight and he couldn't because, like I said, everything rested on him. So I think that's a big part of the lesson that is learned from him. And yet, of course, as time goes on, that military element to kingship becomes less important. So in some ways, I think Henry VI is a bit ahead of his time. There's so much about him that from a 21st century perspective is admirable. The fact he doesn't cheat on his wife, the fact he likes making peace, the fact he just wants like politics to be all together and everyone to love each other. 
lots of those things we can see today and think, oh, yeah, he was probably a nice guy. Where would you rank him in the list of like, England's worst kings? Because undoubtedly his reign wasn't a success. Is he the worst king England's had or are there... So there's other contenders. He's a definite contender, but I I still think it's King John because I don't think there's a single bit of King John that was well-intentioned. Fascinating individual, but he was a horrible person. And many of the same things happen with King John. Civil war, the loss of French territory. It's, it's a lot of the same things. That was Lauren Johnson. Shadow King, The Life and Death of Henry VI is out now in the UK, published by Head of Zeus. And in the US, it's due to be published in May by Pegasus. And you can read a piece by Lauren on Henry in the March issue of BBC History magazine, which is still on sale for a few more days, and also includes pieces on the Victorian underworld, Viking women, the British Empire and more. Look out for it in all good retailers now. And that is all for today, but we'll be back on Thursday when Levi Roach will be discussing how Vikings travelled the world. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.